0: That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW group void word prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus
1: And welcome to the special simulcast of the Neil Haley Show and the Doctor Christopher Hall Show. I'm excited to welcome first my co-host, Nobel Prize-nominated, Doctor Award-winning, offer in emergency room doc, Doctor Christopher Hall. Doctor Hall, how are you? Thank you again for your service, and and I know you're excited about our guest today. Well, I'm very
2: excited about our guest today, and I'm doing great. Uh, but uh, yes, then we have one again very excited a uh, director, actor, film, television. Uh, we certainly learned from West Side Story, from uh, Steven Spielberg's adaptation. Very excited to welcome to the show, Mr. Curtis Cook. Welcome to
3: the show, Curtis. Uh, thank you, guys. I really, uh, it's really great to be here this morning. It's a beautiful, dark, gray, gloomy morning, so we're going to make this very cheerful. Uh, so,
1: so see, I see, I was hoping for dark, gloomy. I mean, I'd rather, I mean, in Texas, the Texas heat, I've been dealing with 100, 105, I... for second, so you're talking dark and gloomy. I kind of would. Miss those days in the Northeast is seventy-four degrees in June. All right, <laughs> Kurt, go ahead with your first question for Curtis. Oh, well, no problem, no problem at all. We Curtis. Um, uh, tell us a little
2: bit about kind of like uh, kind of
3: where you're from. You know how you got into acting. Oh, cool. So I'm um, I'm originally from Dayton, Ohio. I'm born and raised. I'm uh, the oldest of five children. Clifton and Alice Cook are my parents. Um, you know, it's one of those things. I have a good friend of mine who used to say to me that I didn't choose acting, acting chose me. I, uh, I did like school plays in like the seventh and eighth grade. Um, once I got to like the high school area, um, age range, um, I had this, there was an organization in Dayton called the Muse Machine, which was really great for young police, young children. And, um, and it took all the greater city, um, Ohio city area children and put them into like this whole big kind of drama club, um, I'll say, and um, I got involved with them uh, through my eighth, ninth, tenth, and eleventh and twelfth years, um, and they did this big production at the end of each year. They did it at a, um, a Broadway um, size house, um, and roughly around my tenth, eleventh, and twelfth grade years, I started to get the leads in, in those in those musicals that we did. So I was like, oh, I think I got something here. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and the woman that was running them, Miss Susie Pisani um um saw me one day and after, and this was my 12th grade year and I was about to leave to go into the Navy. I had signed up for the Navy. I was about to go in and she was like, um what you gonna do after you graduate? And I was like, yeah, I'm going to the Navy. I'm gonna go to the Navy, come back, work at Montgomery County Engineers, get me like a little $30,000 a year job, get me a nice little house on the side, I'm set. And she was like, no darling, you have too much, too much talent to go to the Navy. And um she helped me get into, um, she set up this whole audition process for me, help me get it to this school in London, England, this conservatory memory theater school. So, um, that was the beginning and the rest was history after that.
1: So, you know, Curtis, how much, how thankful were you that opportunity, especially in Dayton to have that opportunity to be able to be discovered in that way, change the whole life and transform you in so many ways.
3: Well, I mean, I wouldn't be here now if it wasn't for that. Okay, see, this is where the dog gets involved. He's oh, no, I'm,
1: I'm not hearing it, Curtis. So don't worry. We're good. Um,
3: this is when, um, um, if, if, if it wasn't for her and it wasn't for those opportunities in school and those teachers, I had another great teacher in high school, Ms. Patricia Copeland, who, who nurtured and cared for me because I was a bit of a knucklehead growing up. You know what I mean? I, I, um, I was getting into some things that I shouldn't have gotten into. And, um, and these, these teachers saw that I had more um, to offer than, than, than that. Um, so I, I say that those opportunities are, were fundamental, fundamental, and that they were necessary. And I'm hugely grateful
1: for them. All right, fantastic. All right, Dr. Hall, next question. Yeah, wow, that's incredible.
2: And then uh, just, again, having that, those uh, uh, teacher interest from you and, and see your talent. So now, you start off in stage, uh, Curtis, or just compare
3: those two? I mean, what, what do you enjoy more, the stage or the film or what do you think? Oh, wait, yeah, I mean it's it's almost like comparing your children, you know what I mean I have five of them. So you, really, you really can't, you know what I mean, if, if, all of them have their things that going to make you upset and all of them have things that that you love unconditionally. Um, so it's funny enough I'm doing a play as we speak right now um, at the public theater. Um, and um, it's just the opportunity to be able to do all of them. I'm I'm totally grateful for what the stage has taught me as far as time management, as far as character development, as far as um, the repetition of a material and so that it allows you to find new um, um ways to enter the character sometimes and television and film um film definitely doesn't offer that as much because you know you're kind of hitting this character for for six months or so and you kind of stand in this one place but television can kind of offer that because within each episode you have a different direction that that character may be taken in unbeknownst to you because the writers have taken over but um i can't really compare them like that i i really i know this sounds corny and I, you probably hear it a lot but i i i need all of them i feel like they're that, that that, that trifecta of them is, is something that, that needs to be there, that strong triangle that makes it um, solid for me, gets gives it a solid base.
1: And that's so true. And again, you talked about the structure that it develops in stage and different things. You learn to be an impromptu. And so when you audition for things, you're able to monitor and adjust because in theater, you basically have to do that because you never know if somebody forgot a, a portion of a line or somebody had to be replaced last minute. Yeah. There's a lot of different things than taking 17, 20, 50 different takes and it probably drives you nuts when right, right. Once like that because guess what? You're live in front of a performance and there's all these people, you can't take a second take. I'm a former right. professional wrestler and I can't okay. take a second take when I'm in the <laughs> ring with somebody. I can't go and say, Oh, man, you just messed up the spot. Okay, let's stop and go back to the next thing. And that, uh-huh. that really helps you in acting doesn't it? it kind of really hones you in to say, Hey, I'll hit my lines the first time, not the 15th time, even right. me to shoot 10, 12, 12 times the same segment.
3: Yeah, and that, that's that's exactly right, Neil. And also in in, in theater as well, you have a, you have a longer rehearsal period. So you're more comfortable with the people that you're working with. You're more understanding of maybe what this person has to offer and what you don't have so you can compensate and, you know, overcompensate. And sometimes on a film or television set, you're meeting those people on that day. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, so you're starting to do this scene, and you're like, oh, I don't know. Okay, uh, you know, so that's so if you want to call it a safety net, isn't isn't there as readily, um, as it is for a stage because you've probably been rehearsing the piece for maybe four to six weeks before you even got to the stage.
1: That's such a good thing. Okay, Doctor Hall, next question. With no, no problem you know, and then we
2: the interview actors and, and film stars. They tell us how, how difficult that is making the field of acting in Hollywood. So. Chris,
3: tell us about your first big break, uh, particularly in film. Uh wow! A big break. Uh, I'm waiting for my big break, y'all. I'm waiting for my first big break. But um, <laughs> but uh, I remember um, it's it's because there are a lot of those. You know, it's, it's, those are a lot of pivotal moments. For me, um, that changed my life. I remember when I first got my first national commercial. That was a big deal. I remember when I got my first um, national tour of a play. I remember when I got my first, you know, um, small role on a, um, on a on a television show, three lines. Um, so, so, so the big break. You know, I I I I, I know what you mean by that, but I, I don't want to have people think that there's one thing that's going to you know, um, skyrocket your career off. It's all of those things combined that turns out to be, and somebody be like, oh my God, where did they come from? It's like, no, they've been here for 15 years, you know, doing this job. So um, uh, I, I do know that, um, a funny story is, um, I was on Broadway doing Miss Saigon, and I had gotten this small role on this new TV show. It was a new TV show at the time called The Job with Dennis Leary. And I had, and I and it was like a day player kind of role. And I, um, and my one line was, um, Uh, it's an arrow in a tree. I was a uniformed cop. And I said, it's an arrow in a tree because somebody through the park has shot an arrow in a tree and the guy comes up to me and said, what's this? And I say to him, it's an arrow in a tree. He said, oh, that's brilliant. Great, thank you. Um, So I was like, okay, great. You know, I went home, whatever, whatever. It was a one day of work and I came back going to my show. Then I got my check. And I was (laughs) like, whoa. The check (laughs) was almost a little bit more or even equivalent to my Broadway weekly check. Oh, my goodness. I, right, and that's when I was like, OK, um, I'm going to need to figure out how to do a little bit more of this television thing over here. <laughs> they to me like this. But there's one day of nothing in my mind. I need to figure it out. Um, you know, uh, that's a little funny story So that, of course, there's a lot more that's in- involved with getting those little television roles. Um, but uh, but, but yeah, it's, it's a process, man. It's a process, all of it. Um, so the big break comes when you continue to stay the course and stay the line i think
1: so curtis would you say what with, with side story how amazing was that when you got the opportunity to be part of that
3: come on man it's it's a steven spielberg exactly.
1: it's West Side story
3: exactly so it's a character that um wasn't in the original so now they're creating it around what you have and to offer to the piece um, it's, um it's it's a dream of a dream of a dream you know what i mean it's something that you don't even dare to dream because it seems so far-fetched and you're like you know maybe once i reach you know denzel sydney portier you know um um yafet coda status maybe i can start dreaming of something like that but to have it happen in 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 this instance on that kind of film was um was truly truly um amazing um and i thought that um having done shutter island when when when, uh um, spielberg i mean with um scorsese was like You know a topper i was like oh they can never get better than you know me sitting here with leonardo and ben kingsley and and, and mark buffalo but but then here comes um west side story you know what i mean so it's it's once once again it's all of those small steps that leads to the journey right i mean that leads you to the to to your destination on this journey so i am i'm i uh i'm grateful man and i just keep pounding away and keep keep doing the work that i love because it doesn't it doesn't feel like work it just exactly. feels like I'm out here just having having fun, man. And it's people like, oh my God, you're so amazing. I'm like at what? I'm so <laughs> at what? I'm just okay. Thank you, thank you. I've learned to say thank you and move on. But in my mind, that monologue is like, okay, I guess it's good, you know. but Yeah.
1: So in s- talking about experiences with those amazing people that you, I guess, idol- not idolize, but really honor in a way because of working because especially as a trained actor, I look at anyone who's trained in the theater, that they look at these specific people that you mentioned you've worked with, and you, and especially in the acting industry, it's just gotta be amazing just to be just rubbing elbows with them and being on the same set with them and saying, I can't believe this. Did, I, did you ever think this growing up in Dayton, Ohio, this would happen to you, right? To be with Scorsese, to be able to, right. to DiCaprio, to talk, to be with Steven Spielberg, you know what I mean? It's, it's it, it, you gotta pinch yourself.
3: It's I, that, that's that's so true neil and and you know the real the first time that really ever happened for me was when i did um i did a a, a, a play called ain't misbehaving um it's a musical i don't know if you remember it started at the time it, it was from the 70s with Andre de neil carter um and, and I, um amelia McQueen i can't think of what, um i can't remember the other um Ken. Ken, i can't think of his last name right now excuse me but um so, it was a time I was just listening to that CD when I was growing up in, 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 in high school. Be like, I would love to do this piece. I would love to do Ain't Misbehaving. Um, fast forward, I get to New York, I'm auditioning, and at this auditioning, it ends up being that Andre DeShields is directing a production of Ain't Misbehaving. I go in and audition for Andre DeShields. I end up getting the role, playing the role that Andre DeShields originated. We go into this small theater up in Cortland, New York. The costumes andre De Shields hates the costumes that they that they have for me he goes home because he keeps he kept his original broadway costumes he tailors them down to me i wear the original andre De Shields. so that's one of those moments was like uh, this boy in dayton ohio who listened to this this soundtrack of this musical never even thought in a million years that he would have an opportunity to 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 maybe do it on stage but now he's doing it in front of with the man who originated the role. And that's one of those pinch yourselves moments. And, and, and I don't know if you know who Andre De Shields is, but he's a Broadway legend. He's a, he's a legend in his own right. And um, um, so that kind of set the course. So as I began to meet other people that I kind of idolized or admired, because what he taught me was hard work. I'm just a person. You are just as talented, and when you walk into a space with that, not even more less it's just that we're we're all here to to make something beautiful right, right? we're all here to do the same thing and and moving in in into spaces after that, it kind of gives you a relax it's like, okay, oh my god, I'm sitting across from x y it's like, okay, relax, relax. you both have the scene, you both have the work. Let's do it let's let you know just do your best and do what you are able to do and nine times out of 10 if you focus that way. A lot of the mystique and all that goes away and then they kind of look at you different like oh appear okay so now let's all right let's go let's do this, then nah, let's you know. Let's um, let's wrestle you know what I mean and let's show you sure this new move that I just made up or whatever so. It, it's amazing. I'm honored. I, I'm, I'm fortunate. I never forget about how fortunate I am with any of it. And I'm I'm I'm, I'm just living. I'm living a dream. I'm living the dream.
1: That's, that's fantastic. All yeah. right, Dr. Hall. Next question. Oh no, I just want to ask Curtis a little bit about uh, his experiences with directing, and he he's uh, kind of getting more into. With directing, he said.
3: Uh, say that one more time. I, I missed it. Uh,
1: he said, directing. How, your experiences in directing.
3: In directing?
1: Oh, right. So um,
3: directing, I, we, I used to have a theater company here in New York City. Um, it was called Tupuquedi Theater Company. And the theater company came out of, um, and, and still actually to this day, and this was back in the late 90s, early 2000s when we when we started. Um, there is no repertory, black repertory theater company in New York City. There are theater companies, there are theater spaces, National Bank Theater Company, um, um Henry Street Settlement company, but there's no repertory company like like say for instance um, what they have in Chicago, um uh I can't think of it right now, it just escape me, but uh, it'll come to me later. Um, like a repertoire can where the same group of people, they do like a season of whatever. And that made me very angry. Why not in the capital of, of, of theater, New York, that there isn't one. So I start. we started this company and in that, because it was us and on our own, we had to write our own stuff and begin to direct our own things. And primarily I would do the directing and the writing. And what quickly began to happen is that a lot of um, interest start to come because we were doing very interesting stuff. We were doing um, very realistic um, kind of um, um, breaking the, fir- um, the fourth wall kind of pieces, and so we got a lot of attention from the New York Times and and other syndications. and And then we started to get all this other attention, and I began to be like the artistic director of the company, and I started to do all this kind of paperwork and meetings or whatever else, and I was like I didn't I come to New York to sit behind this desk and write and direct and so. So my directing kind of quick me in because I was like I, I there was a future in it, but it, that wasn't what I came to New York to do I came here to act primarily um maybe i'll get back to that um it, it, it's not the same passion I don't have the same passion for directing as I do for acting um, um or even producing I I, I I will help out, I will. I, I would give my information, my, my knowledge, my assistance in anything, but I really enjoy just finding characters and finding unique and different ways to bring them to life. That's what I really
1: enjoy. Fantastic. And I think it's the key thing is you look at this and you say to yourself, you like the directing end, but you found what your passion is. This doesn't feel like work when you're acting and you're directing. There's a lot more work involved and you enjoy where you are in your career and where you're going. And I think that's important. So let's talk about the child. Uh, again I, I and i've got to go back into my notes i think i've interviewed somebody back when the chai first came out I have to okay as you see i'm again the number 12 celebrity podcaster in the world according to feed scott so i interview celebrities all the time so i don't <laughs> know i know for a fact i was on a tour with the chai i'm almost okay. i'll look back but tell us specifically your character in the chai and what's what's it about the premise so
3: the so the chai is, is is um uh... A coming of age um, um, television series that's centered around this community as um, in the South Side of Chicago, Illinois. Um, Hence the name Shy Town. You know the Shy. So, um, uh, and it, uh, I, it's been. This is our fifth season. We're going into our fifth season. I joined the Shy on the in the second season of the Shy. My character, um, his name is um, Otis Duda Perry. Um, he has been known to be called a gangster um, and then surely enough, he became the mayor of Chicago. Um, some people say that ain't that different. But um, uh, he, um, he also uh, um, used to own like pizza, uh, these pizza parlors. And he, basically he still does. So he's, he's this businessman gangster and he was um, one of the head links of the 63rd Street mob that was behind the scenes that nobody ever saw. So, um, he's kind of a puppet master. Um, he's very suave, very debonair, very well put together, and, um, and he can be very dangerous at times, very dangerous.
1: Interesting, and so how do you play, like again, Mr. Theater, actor from London, how did you change as a gangster? Tell us some of that preparation time to learn more to play the gangster as Mr. Theater? You know, well, people think of you know when you get certain casts, and you're like, "Come on now, I can go and have a dialogue with Ben Kingsley, <laughs> some major thing," and now you have me playing a gangster. So you don't. <laughs>
3: have- but you know, sometimes people say, you know, sometimes the um, work has already been done before you even get to the role. Sometimes people say a life that you've led before just somehow just happens to coincide with what you're doing currently. That's not the case here, <laughs> but um. <laughs> Well, <laughs> what I will say is that um, a lot of research, man. Um, I, I, I tend to go back to a time in um, in Black culture, and in, in America's culture, where films um, were considered um, not the best, which was called the Black exploitation time. Because I feel that in some of those films, there's a grittiness, there's a, a truth that can be extracted from. Uh, so I, I i i for this role in particular i would i would focus on some of those and then um i would go and look into the lives of some of the real life gangsters that have you know or gang members or gang leaders that have led that have that that live in certain communities and i would kind of um, um, research and follow back and just see what in common might i have or not have with these individuals what is their real through line and i found that in some of the cases i mean like i'm i'm, I'm a, a member of the um Phi Beta Sigma fraternity um incorporated um and like Huey P Newton um is also was also a um, fraternity brother so you, if you were to look into why he began the Black Panther Party or why he was involved with it you would see that it was about community it was about you know what standing up for your community and what that means and I also feel that this dude of, oh, this due to Perry he also cares about community wow. and, and what's happening in that. So so there was a lot of parallels in that. So I would gather all this information up together like a big stew, right? And try to figure out what nuggets to bring out in this particular scene, in that particular scene or, or on this particular day or in this particular episode.
1: I see, I, I find that's very interesting. And intriguing in so many ways playing that character, understanding that. Think about when you talked about those times when the characters were not portrayed in the correct way. You look at Robert Townsend, he really changed all that from his point. Mm-hmm. I've mean, interviewed Robert too. And what a talking about and how things have developed. And hopefully, where do you where do you see things going for the Black community when it comes to mm-hmm. film? Where do you see finally that the typecasting will stop and more and more you'll see? the right types of roles happen. What are your thoughts on that?
3: Well, I mean, you know, the, the right types is a tricky phrase, you, you know what I mean? Because I, I think that, that there has been great, great opportunities and there will continue to be great opportunities. Um, uh, I, I think that where things are moving now is very encouraging. You know what I mean? With um, the 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 streaming networks and all the different um outlets that are around giving a lot more people opportunities just to put their ideas up um um but in that too sometimes you you, it's like anything when the floodgates open everybody comes in it's going to take a little time to kind of weed out okay you know what that was cool now we just need to kind of weed out what's what's necessary and what's just kind of noise you know but but it's all good you have to get there first right you have to just kind of bust in before you can see who needs to stay and who can't stay and some of those people that bust in they're just busting in because they can not because they really want to be there you know what i mean it's like oh there's a sale over there okay let me get into there And it's like oh i don't need a, a shovel why am i here let me go back home you know what i mean um so i, I i'm i'm very um Optimistic about where um, television and film is, is heading um, right now, especially for for African Americans and and for all, all communities, for the LGBTQ um, communities as well as for uh, Asian communities. You know, there's is all of it is exciting. Exactly, I just,
1: all yeah, of it. Yeah, to a the podcast special needs about as well, certain special needs actors that have, the Yes, role exactly. Role. More the roles, absolutely. Mm-hmm. all right, yeah. right Doctor Hall, can you summarize Curtis for us?
2: Well, we know we're no problem and just listen to curtis and I, I certainly agree with everything he says he said so far about the um you know the strides that have been made uh, in, in acting you know, as african myself just since over the years and he's been part of that and so he's given us a great message this morning for our young people you know he said work hard he said basically you know uh if you're in the room with these talented people believe in yourself look you're just as talented okay Go with your passion and do what you love and uh, and believe in yourself. And so, wow, I'm just so excited that we had uh, Curtis Cook on the show this morning. So thanks for uh, coming by, sir.
1: Man,
3: thank you guys for having me. It's been great. I appreciate really great. too,
1: Curtis. And again, uh, Dayton, Ohio. So you're a Midwest guy. I, I consider Pittsburgh Midwest as well. Oh yeah. You know, my dad's
4: from Pittsburgh. My dad's from Pittsburgh.
1: Okay, great. This will be on a Pittsburgh station as well. So if he's yeah, so uh, just great uh type of place, Pittsburgh, just like Dayton. And I remember back in the day wrestling in Dayton. So I remember always tri- taking that uh, travel out. From Wheeling all the way to Dayton, Ohio, and then you know, all those different places, just straight up, straight shot, Columbus, all those. So appreciate you coming on, Curtis. The, the, where can we check out the latest episodes and stuff right now, or when does the newest season start for The Child? So so
3: actually, um, we start the first Friday, June 24th, is um, it's going to be available on streaming, and then on the 26th, that same episode, episode one, and then um, every Sunday after June 26th.
1: Shy yeah time. season, season five the, the shy, yep the shy is available all over great and curtis you can check you out still on west side story people can check you out there and then all these other things and other projects do you have any other projects coming up that you can uh, tell there,
3: there may be a quick sighting i don't know if you remember manifest the um series on mbc
1: yeah, yeah i'm a huge fan of manifest i've been yeah so top stars yeah so
3: fans. there may be a sighting of rad coming back on manifest so keep your eyes open I can't say okay. too much. So okay, maybe so maybe I'm, maybe I'm, maybe. Waiting
1: for, I'm waiting. I got to catch up. I got to talk to NBC because I do tours with NBC and I interview okay. some of the major stars from, from Manifest. It's one of my favorite shows and I'm just going and checking Netflix. And I'm like, man, still. So it's still rolling. That's great. I love that show. It's a fantastic mm-hmm. show and continued success, all these different things and keep up the great work, Curtis. Appreciate it.
3: Thank you guys. I appreciate you guys a lot. All
1: right. Thank that you. was the Dr. All Christian Hall right. show, guys. Take care. Hi everyone and welcome to the World Doc Allen Podcast. I'm excited to welcome to the program World Doc Allen Lindeman. Doc, what's going on? How are you?
5: I'm great, Neil. Thank you very much.
1: All right. So we always talk about, and today we're going to talk about iron deficiency uh, and especially taking iron during pregnancy. How do I prevent? So the question is, how do I prevent iron deficiency anemia in pregnancy? For uh, How would you do that, Doc?
5: Well, the first thing you do is you prevent iron deficiency. And those are two different topics. But you test for iron deficiency with a ferritin. And you do that at the first um, visit. You te- and you test for iron deficiency at also the same time. And the way you prevent iron deficiency anemia is you prevent iron deficiency. And the way you prevent iron deficiency is you can take iron and um, you can take it either in a gluconate which is uh, less absorbed but easier on your stomach or you can take it in the sulfate form and if you can't take it in either one you can get it IV.
1: Wow that's uh, very very interesting and it's the thing and people don't understand that important thing because if you let, if you're iron deficient what what can happen in a pregnancy if the mother's iron deficient?
5: Well. There are many things that can happen, and of course, you can have a small for gestational no, age baby. You can deliver prematurely. You can the risk of having a baby in the uh, in, in the neonatal intensive care unit is greater. Um, and of course, there's also the uh, greater risk of uh, anemia, uh, blood transfusions, uh, blood clots. So you don't want iron deficiency in anemia.
1: No doubt. What if I, I can't? If 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 I could? If the mother could not take iron gluconate or iron sulfate?
5: Well, then you certainly can get IV by, uh, iron by IV sources.
1: Okay. Okay. What are the common sources of iron in our diet?
5: Well, anything that's red. For example, red meat. Um, the uh, dark meat of chicken, turkey, um, vegetables, the um, apple peels, radishes, uh, prunes, grapes. Anything that's red or brown has iron in it.
1: All right. The best place to find information, especially sign up for your membership site, is go where?
5: RuralDocAllen.com
1: all right well we appreciate another great world doc allen podcast guys take care and we'll talk soon. hi everyone and welcome to the world doc allen podcast i'm excited to welcome world doc allen lineman doc how are you what's going on i'm great thanks neil i'm excited about our next topic we're going to talk about today And that is, what is shoulder dystocia? And so basically, uh, let's go into what it is.
5: Well, what happens is the baby's head comes out to about the ears. In other words, it doesn't come all the way out. And the rest of the baby is hung up inside of mom. And the problem is that the front shoulder is not going under the pubic pole. So the baby is stuck.
1: Okay, oh my gosh, that's not good, is
5: it? It's, uh, I tell you, it brings diarrhea to um, many of the people taking care of those patients.
1: All right, what is Mick Roberts' maneuver?
5: That is to bring the knees up to the chest. So you flex the hips, you flex the knees. What you do is you open the back of the pelvis, make room. And so my favorite way of delivering shoulder dissociation is to deliver the posterior or the back arm. And one time I had to even turn the baby around. So I had the front arm became the back arm. So I delivered the head in both arms. And that was a lady, she was about four feet, 10. Um, and uh, her baby weighed 10 pounds, four ounce. So but everybody did fine with that.
1: Are there other ways to manage shoulder dystocia?
5: Well, yes, there are. Uh, I have never used them. I think one of the most barbaric ways is to try to push the baby's head back up into the mother's vagina or uterus and then go for a cesarean section. There are many problems with that, but certainly the pressure that you put on the baby's head and the baby's neck
1: uh, would be great. Are there alternative birthing positions to avoid shoulder dystocia? Well, you can
5: certainly, you know, I was talking about having the mom on her back, which is traditional and uh, not probably always the best way, but it is what we, most of us do in this country anyway, and in in the world, by the way, but certainly uh, the side is a very good way. Also, um, if you just want to squat on the floor, that's not a bad way. If you want to stand up and lean into your husband, that's not a bad way. Uh, so there are alternative ways to do to deliver the, show, the uh, shoulder dystocia, dystocia baby.
1: And you have a great resource that people could go ask questions and everything if they become a member by going to where?
5: RuralDocAllen.com. Supporter. So, supporter group.
1: Supporter group. But you can sign up for the supporter group by going to the website. Everyone needs to check yep. them out and appreciate it. Uh, Doc, for another great information.
5: Thank you so much, Neil.
1: You're welcome. That was the World Doc Allen podcast. Guys, take care. Welcome to Every Child Can Learn, and I'm excited to welcome our host, Phil Maycomer. Phil, what's going on? How are you?
6: Oh, boy. It has been a long school year for all educators, and I am so excited to do a shout out to all of our educators and administrators and families to say you're almost near the finish line, Don't give up, and let's dive into another meaningful topic in Every Child Could Learn.
1: Yes, absolutely. And our topic today is the question that I always ask, that Phil asks, but I ask it, is how can we best support teachers in implementing the principles of universal design for learning and real-time lessons in the classroom?
6: So I think to start with, let's all get on the same page about what universal design for learning really means in education, because it's a buzzword for sure. So I'd like to just put it in simple terms. Universal design for learning means all, not some. UDL means that you can reach all students engage all students, and then set up systems for all students to express themselves successfully. Now, as educators, we have all been to multiple UDL seminars and workshops, and you may even be thinking that as you're listening to this podcast, but sometimes it's more workshops and seminars than we can really count. Yet many educators still walk away with being baffled as to how to take the theory of the general ideas of what we have learned and build them seamlessly into a real life classroom lesson on any subject area, math, science, social studies, literacy, anything. Now I am passionate about solving this problem in my partnership with various administrators and teaching staff and my guests In this episode, Dr. Kevin Stone is going to share how to provide practical and meaningful training for staff to best support them and the range of diverse students they educate in the classroom. Now, let me tell you a bit about Kevin. Dr. Kevin Stone is the K-6 principal of Troy Elementary School in New England in the state of New Hampshire. He has been in the field of education since 1984. He knows what works and what doesn't work. He served his time starting out in the classroom as a teacher and then moving to a leadership role in administration. A foundation of Kevin's educational philosophy is to break down the barriers between special education and general education so that his staff are better able to meet the needs of all students in the classroom while developing a positive mindset. Now I know this because I have worked side by side with Kevin in implementing a multi-year strategic plan in supporting his teaching staff. In 2018, Kevin served on my practitioner panel for the national launch of my new UDL strategy seminar And he shared multiple real life stories of how everyday educators in his building were creatively using these easy teaching strategies. I will tell you, Kevin is a believer in reaching all, not some, and is very passionate about putting into place universal systems of instruction and providing practical training for all staff. So I'd like to welcome you, Kevin, to this episode of Every Child Can Learn. Thanks, Bill. I'm so excited for this conversation today. You know, you and I have been around the block many times for the years that we've worked <laughs> in education, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And um, so I think what I'd like to start with is just identifying the problem, right? Um, you know, we certainly can come up with solutions, but I think we need to frame the problem. And so I think my question that I'd like to uh, toss out to you is what are the biggest struggles for teachers when attempting to implement UDL in the classroom so that they reach all and not some?
4: So I think you hit it on the head, Phil. Um, You know, implementation is always the biggest, the biggest um, obstacle to overcome. Um, Teachers are often not exactly sure how to apply the theory that they learn in workshops. Um, into the regular classroom setting. Time is another issue, right? I mean, right. Trying, trying to wrap your head around, um, oh, this is great information and making it apply to the classroom that you have and the personalities that you have in your classroom um, certainly are, are challenging. Um, teachers have, you know, they've got the desire, but in the will to do things, but um, sometimes the, the, it's easier to do what you already know than to try something new, right?
6: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, you know, I love how you said the will and really the resilience in education. Right. And, you know, I always say that educators places or or educators hearts are always in the right place but it's that time factor of, okay, there's that binder I got in my workshop or that file in my Google drive. How am I gonna look at that and then say, how do I do this in science, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I think that there's a disconnect there.
4: Well, and you know, it's not just isolated to to, to teachers in classrooms. I mean, I I think we've all been to workshops administratively, even myself, you know, we've been to workshops, we've gotten these wonderful binders and all these are wonderful ideas. But how do you really implement them in your school so that they're going to work? Um, so it's not like you say it's not just isolated to teachers, right. um, but it's all small steps, you know. I, and I think that's key.
6: Yeah, yeah, that is key. And so, what? How do we begin to like sift through this? And and how did we start to sift through this in our strategic plan? Like, how did we start to solve this? So
4: I think part of what we, we talked about over time um, is the idea that you know, teachers really have it, um, but implementing was, was the issue. Um, they really weren't sure how to do it. Um, and it looked different, you know, and, and that's good because you're, each teacher is expressing themselves in a different way. So that you want to encourage that, that uniqueness, that, that difference. Um, but we tried to put together something that was going to help them um, to break it down. Right. Um, When you get the UDL, I mean, there are volumes about UDL and a universal design of learning and how to do it and what it should be and what it should look like. Um, They've read, you know, that our teachers here at Troy read a summer read over over the summer to try to help the process a little bit. We had planned a professional development um, piece as well. Um, to again try to break it down step by step because that whole picture of un- the universal design of learning is way, it could be very overwhelming.
6: Yeah. And you know, just to review for our listeners, there are three basic areas of universal design for learning. One is offer multiple ways to represent information when you're teaching. Don't just talk pair it with visuals, have things that are hands-on projects, that kind of category. Then there is multiple levels of engagement. How can we provide multiple ways to engage students in the classroom? And then there's the third category of action and expression. How do kids share what they know? And we need to offer them different ways to do that based on their learning styles. So some people may be thinking, oh, my goodness, those are like three spinning plates, right? In a very busy school day when you have 180 seconds to go to the bathroom every day, right? right. And right. so you and I said, let's hmm. not take on all three at the same time, right? We well, focus we
4: kind of, on and one. We kind of, and we kind of prioritized, right? We, we yeah. knew that they had a background. We knew that... Um, you know, some of the teachers had had made attempts. So, um, so I'm sorry, I thought I cut you off. Sorry about that.
6: No, no, no. I no, I and that's valuable. Go on.
4: Um, so what we chose to do here in Troy is because they had the knowledge and that they had some idea of what you, the universal design of learning was, we chose to take um what the piece of engagement because that seemed to be where people were getting stuck. It's like there's all of this, what's going to work for me? And You know, for a lot of teachers, it's a trial and error kind of thing. Um, So Phil and I got together and we presented, which we're still in the process of, because that's one of the other things that we learned. Um, But we presented a workshop on what engagement was, what it looked like, um, the self-reflection that needed to happen as a result of our work, um, and those kinds of processes to to help the teachers apply it in the classroom.
6: Right. You know, and one of the things that I love with how we structured this is it was not professional development that was a seven-hour seminar all in one day, because we know that when you attend something like that, people usually retain about 20% of what they learn in that given day. We did it in bite-sized chunks. And now I know that Neil Haley has also served in education for a long time. And Neil, you and I have always talked about the we need to simplify learning and simplify teaching. And one exactly. way to do that, right, is to put things in parts and chunks that make sense.
1: Yeah, you gotta break things down for people and explain it. And if you're gonna do one size fits all, it's just not gonna work in education with the diverse learners that are in the classroom. And then if a teacher doesn't understand specifically those things, they need experts like Phil and yourself to kind of break it down for them because we all wanna cover so much curriculum in a whole year, versus checking for understanding and checking for understanding when it comes to each individual learner, not just the ones that get it or the average, everyone and every child can learn. And that's why you have the show.
6: Well, thank you, Neil. You know, I'll tell you one thing to shout out to our listeners that Kevin and I did not do. We did not stand there and say, oh, let us explain what multiple levels of engagement are to teachers who attempt to do this every day. We did not insult their intelligence with this. We came in saying, we know you understand that multiple levels of engagement are boom, 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 boom. What we're going to do is develop a list of the top 10 implementation tips of how to put this theory into real life lessons and showed example after example. And that's what we'd like to talk with you about in this episode. So Kevin, let's get down to some specifics now, now that we have framed this out, Um, because we want to give listeners maybe a handful of some of these strategies. And, you know, Kevin, you started to say, and I started to smile when you said, oh yes, we came up with like a list of the top 10. And so Kevin and I did this in a series of staff meetings. Right, Kevin? Right. Yeah, and how long would you say our sessions were?
4: So we had planned for <laughs> reality and what really happens. I mean, what we plan for and what reality really are two different things, right? Um, Yeah, but
6: meaning in terms of length of instruction.
4: I want to say it was a half an hour to 45 minutes each.
6: Right, right. So Kevin and I thought through the series of, we intended to do like five to six sessions for the year uh, during staff meetings. And regardless of the number of sessions that we did, we found that as opposed to rushing through the different implementation tips, that staff really wanted to discuss them and then apply and say, this is how I could then think about doing this in my class. So we spent so much more time on one particular tip that maybe that's all we discussed in the 30 to 45 minutes, right, Kevin?
4: Correct, that's correct.
6: And it was time well spent, Absolutely. You know, right? Like I remember you looking at me and saying, Film. we haven't even gotten th- through like like three or four of these yet and we're almost done with our pd time for the year and you and i kind of laughed and said great because that means people were really engaged so to speak
4: right no absolutely training, right well and have been able to take what we've taught and apply it in the classroom which is what we wanted which is what the focus was right so exactly. it, it actually worked well um you know, we didn't get everything that we wanted to done, but they've taken what we've shown them and moved forward with it, which is, in my book, progress.
6: And we're continuing it for the upcoming school year. Correct. Right? So yeah. that is that ebb and flow of assess and adjust, assess and adjust, and, and also follow the lead of your teachers. They know what they need. They, and, and they'll tell you that sometimes in ways that are not even conscious to them. So let's give our listeners some examples of some strategies that we covered before we end today. Like maybe let's share two or three of them. Would that be all right? And then I can give some examples if you share a strategy, Kevin.
4: Sure. So the first one that we talked about um, was encourage students um, to access what they've learned, right? their own learning and provide regular opportunities for students to self-reflect. Not only the students, but for the adults as well similar to what Phil just described that we had done as a result of our our work together.
6: Right, I always say, and Kevin has heard me say this in seminars that he has attended of mine, that one of the greatest gifts that we could give our students is giving them the opportunity and the the practice of self-reflection because it forces you, as my wonderful father used to say, it forces you to be fess up honest with yourself. So um, so assessing and forming a habit of evaluation of yourself is a really good thing. And that's a way to really engage students in the classroom. Um, like one of the examples that I had shown, Kevin, that I shared with your staff was the three-three exercise that I always teach students. So like at the end of a chunk of a lesson. And that lesson might be across three days, or it could be just on a one day delivery in a 45 minute block. What are the three things that we really did well? And what are the three things we want to work on the next time? So you're always doing that kind of assessment and having those kinds of discussions with your kids in your class, facilitated by a teacher, time well spent. So what do we think about a number two? What else did we share with your staff?
4: So another um, thought that we try to push home, which really has, has um, been applied a lot here in Troy, is the idea of archiving um, students' feedback and trying oh. to um, you know, capture that.
6: Yeah. Um, oftentimes when we have feedback given by students, or like, say we're in a collaborative discussion. I mean, you were a classroom teacher, Kevin, you know that you might open it up and say, okay, we're going to discuss blank, right? That students will participate and you engage your students, but sometimes students are thinking about what they want to say, that they're not listening to what their classmates are saying. And sometimes they say the same thing. And then the teacher says, oh, but Scott just shared that. right?
2: Right.
6: And so when we archive student feedback in a nice visual way, say you had pictures of your students on a slide and there were little speech bubbles there, as each student is sharing, if you have someone, it could be the teacher, it could be a student, depending on the grade level, or it could be an adult support person in the classroom, just jots down a phrase of what that student said. So next to the picture of Scott, It says something like, um, I thought it was a waste of tea. Say you were discussing the Boston Tea Party, right? In social studies. And then another student says something like, it was a protest at the Harbor. It was, and so you start archiving this and students can see, and then you have a really nice formative or summative assessment, right? Absolutely. So I love that. So the two we we've reviewed so far, Have students self-reflect, engage them to share about their performance. Then also, whatever their feedback is in the classroom, make it visible. Let's make sure it's not invisible. And the more they see, the more they want to add, right? And it also shows, oh, look, I didn't participate yet. I better get something in my bubble. Right, So it is a form of engagement and it really works. And we showed multiple examples in our professional development. Do we have time for one more, Kev?
4: We do, I think, yeah. So one that really kind of hits home for me um, because I think it's a deficit and it's it's a struggle for a lot of students is the executive functioning piece. Um, We talked a lot about key executive functions and how to help students apply what teachers are, you know, what teachers are really talking about and how to organize their day?
6: Yeah, organization is key and explicitly teaching different executive functions like organization, prioritizing, planning, and then impulse control, those types of things that we know can be a struggle in the classroom. And doing it in two ways. some examples that Kevin and I have given were through actual executive functioning lessons that were taught in the classroom, and then others were just executive functioning warm ups at the start of a lesson. So, like for example, an example I had given was uh, you're getting ready to put a poster together. Let's do the example of the Boston Tea Party, and it's a kids are putting their collages together about the uh, start of the Revolutionary War. And your executive functioning warm up can be related to organization, planning, and prioritizing because that's related to building collages and posters. So I think that this really helps students engage more when they know what their brain's supposed to be focused on. Agreed. So Kevin, before we end here, cause we're nearing the end of our time, Do you have any advice to teachers or administrators who maybe want to do this in their districts or in their building?
4: So I do. Um, I think it's it's very important to remember that um, challenge is always good. It's always a good idea to stretch what you've done as far as in the classroom. Um, But remember that you can't do everything perfectly the first time. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's important to remember that small chunks, small steps are are important if you're going to make things succeed. Um, And then administratively, I think it's it's important to get a pulse on where your staff is. Um, One of the things that I found in my staff is that there there were several people who were already engaged um, deeply in the UDL work um, and were happy to help us um, move it forward in, in the school. Um, I don't think that there's an administrator out there that wouldn't challenge um, their, their staff to try something new. Um, you know, I, I understand that teachers are very nervous when administrators come in. But if, when administrators are working hand in hand with teachers, which is another thing that I think is important, right? You can't just sort of give it and not expect some help. So I think administratively that the help and support is important as well. Um, things don't happen overnight. So I can't stress enough that the small steps is what really, really is going to help you grow and build.
6: Yeah. And steps that are connected, right? Not these just random activities. And that's what I really like. We're talking about executive functions and brains. That's what I love about your brain, Kevin, is that you just don't want to do an activity for the sake of doing an activity with your staff. You want it to connect to the bigger picture, right? Right,
4: right. And, well, and provide for what students need. And this is truly exactly. what need. You know, this really is going to break down the barriers for kids. Um, and that's really what we're about, right?
6: It is, it is what we're about. And it was a true pleasure having you on this episode. And I really would look forward to having you back. And we can then share out maybe what we're doing in our next year of our strategic planning related to UDL and multiple levels of engagement. And uh, we can discuss more possibly about how we even came up with our strategic plan, because I think sometimes people like to think strategically, but don't know what the starting steps are. So I think that this conversation could continue even into another episode.
4: Absolutely, it would be my pleasure.
6: Well, thank you, Dr. Stone. A true pleasure as always. and As always. And Neil, uh, I think that this topic is extremely important, not only for teachers, but for parents to know that their kids are being engaged in class and learning engagement strategies to increase their participation, to share what they know, and to build the confidence to do so.
1: Absolutely. Great information and definitely want to go back and listen to it because, again, things always change in education. We're in a cyclical process. We are looking for we always find new and innovative ways to teach kids. And this is what every child can learn. You could just get these experts out there that really are providing great information for everyone from parents, teachers and administrators. So everything that, uh, you know, a mission I had when I first started in radio was this. So and Phil's really hitting it with the kind of guests she brings on.
6: Well, thank you, Neil. And if you'd like to find out more information about the type of work that can be supported in your district, you can go to aboutthepact.com. That's about, A-B-O-U-T, the, T-H-E, PACT, P-A-C-T.com, aboutthepact.com. You also might wanna pick up a toolkit of the copy of the Kindle version of Every Child Can Learn on Amazon, uh, or contact me directly at Phil P-H-Y-L, at aboutthepact.com.
1: Excellent. What a great show of Every Child Can Learn. I appreciate both Kevin and also Phil. So guys, take care.
6: Thanks. Thank you.